I like the first few lines there of the last verse. Uh, Troubled soul, the Saviour can see. Heartaches and tears, he can see it. So whether we come in here with smiles, whether we come in here uh, with a, a good clothes on, just know that although not everyone has the right to see what you're troubled with, the Saviour can see you. He hears you and he is with you. So in the name of Jesus Christ, I welcome you, my church family. I also want to welcome our visitors. Uh, you know, if this is your first time here, um, I'd like to welcome you here. Uh, if it's your second time, I welcome you again. Uh, but the third time I welcome you, I welcome you as family. Uh, you're very much a part of the family. And again, I just want to say how proud I am of uh, my church family. I, you know, the leaders that I serve with, the, the people that I worship with, it is such a privilege to be able to be up here and be a part of this process where we are worshipping God, but we are also being the hands and feet of his gospel to the, our community. And so I'm very proud of you. I sing of your praises uh, to my church leaders and my mentors, how awesome you guys are. And so I just want to pray that God continues to fill you with the Spirit, to continue to do what you do out of your hearts. And so praise God. Um, but yes, the title of our sermon this morning, as I mentioned in the children's story, uh, lovely children's story, um, you know, uh, what is holding you in times of trouble? I'll pause just for a little bit. What is holding you in times of trouble? Just think of the times of troubles you've, you've been through. Maybe think of the one you're currently going through. Maybe that trouble, maybe because you're not seen or you're not heard. Maybe it might be financial because of where the world is heading. Maybe it might be trauma. Something you can't shake off but keeps coming back. What is holding you in times of trouble? Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is writing to the church here in Corinth. This is the second letter. Now, there's a third letter because he speaks of a third letter, but it's lost. So we've only got two letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So he writes three times, but we've only got two collections of his letter to the church in Corinth. And he's writing to them about the sexual immorality that is happening in that space. Now, it was one church, but it was Corinth was like a, a very... It was a new area. What's a, what's a new area that's just been building here and everyone's moving to? Anyone know an area here in Wagga? Where? Where was that? Heather? Okay, that place. <laughs> so imagine that as Corinth, right? This new place, new houses being built up, new shopping centres, 
um, you know, new job opportunities. That was what Corinth was like. It was this new town. And people were moving to Corinth for, for a new journey. Now, imagine, like here in Australia, the multitude of ethnicities that were moving to this space. Now you get different ideas, you get different values, you get different gods. And in that place was the church of God. And Paul is writing to this church to help them abstain from the things other churches are doing. So you could imagine all the little things that will try and creep into the church. Paul is really trying to train up his church to be aware of the false prophets. So we come here to 2 Corinthians, where he is starting to talk about in chapter 12 what we should really boast about. Now, the false apostles, they're boasting about all the good things that they're doing. You imagine that if I came into Wagga on my first day, or even now, and said, man, I'm so good. Like, look at me. I know the word of God better than you. Like, I, my prayers are heard by God. I don't know about your prayers. Like, I've brought so many people to God. Like, what have you done? Like, I'd be thrown out of church. I could see Ian starting to go red. <laughs> I'd be thrown out of church. But the false prophets in this context, they're boasting of what they're doing. You know, um, my, my nana always said to me in Psalm 1, I'll say it in Psalm 1 and I'll translate it for you. It says, Olunga, Olalo Mawailunga, Olalo Mawailunga. Oh, wait, no. Olunga Mawailalo. <laughs> so, in translation, to find the top, you start from the bottom. To find the bottom, you start from the top. Does that make sense? So Paul here is teaching the church that there are false apostles that are trying to infiltrate your church and trying to get you to believe different from what I have already told you. But let's read in uh, 2 Corinthians um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is where I'll start my reading, but before we read, let's pray. All right, Father God, we thank you for your word, which continues to point us, Lord Father, and make us wise unto salvation, which is found in faith through Jesus Christ. Thank you for all that you do. We love you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So, chapter 12, I'll start my reading from verse 1. It says, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know I am a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. And then whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows. Was caught up to paradise was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, 
because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I had pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, my, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Last one. Uh, and therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. You know, Paul was a very educated man. I would even go on to say that Paul would be mentioned in the likes of Aristotle and Plato had it not been for his calling to God. He was a philosopher. He was a, a Pharisee. And Pharisees, they knew their word inside and out. They knew their word. So what he was doing to chase down Christians, he, he was doing out what, what he was thinking was right. What he understood until he met Jesus. But he talks about having been caught up to the third heaven. Now, please, don't let anyone tell you that there are three heavens and that based on how you behave, you will go to the third heaven. And if you're all right, you'll go to the second one. And if you're really good, you go to the first one. There is teaching out there that people teach that the three heavens is based on how you behave. But that's not what the word of God says, because the Greek word there for that heaven is the dwelling place of God. The, third he the, the second heaven that it talks about, it's the space. That space out there that holds all the galaxies and the stars and the planets. And then... You've got the first heaven, which God created in, in, in the beginning of time, where he said, let there be a firmament, right? Let there be a pocket of air that separates the waters. And he calls that heaven. Okay, so don't let anyone deceive you that there are three heavens. If you behave, if you do all right, you'll still go to heaven, but you'll go to the third one. Okay, so Paul talks about this little experience he has where he is caught up to the paradise to the dwelling place of God. And then they talk, he says that they've spoken about things that I should not speak about. So Paul could really boast about some things, right? He could really just say, you know what, those apostles that are telling all these lies, let me tell you what I experienced. But he doesn't go on to say that. Let me tell you what, ex what existed in the time of Paul. The Greeks are made up of four tribes, and I'm only going to tell you about two of them. And the four tribes are the two tribes. There's one that you call the Ionian Greeks, which you'll know today as Turkey. And then you've got the Italian Greeks, which you know today as Italy, right? Now, they all believed in gods. Now, every nation that existed before them always believed in something. They always believed that there was a god or gods, whatever it was. They always believed there was something up until... The Greeks' time. Now, the Ionian Greeks, they're these guys that um, 
finally realized, you know, these gods that we've, anyone know of the mythologies or the, or the gods of mythology, like Zeus, Thor, you got God of War, Ares, um, you know, you got all these gods, right? They realize, the Ionian Greeks realize, they behave like us. They're just as messed up, they're, they're thieves, they're liars, they wage war with each other, um, and they realize, you know what, they didn't create us, we created them. And so the Ionian Greeks, they break away from, from this belief that there are gods, and they begin to study nature. They begin to try and find a purpose for life. In the elements, and once one philosopher says, it's water. It's from the water that we came into existence. One says it was fire. And then one comes along and says, no, it's, it, it's a force. There's a force that is creating all these things, and his name is Heraclides. Heraclides is this guy that, that says that there's a force there. I don't know what it is, but he calls it Logos. We all know where the word logos comes from. It's from Heraclides. But John, when he writes John chapter 1, where he says the word was with God. and That's right. That word he's talking about is logos. John borrows it from Heraclides and says, I know that force that's in nature. I know that force that has created things. And that force is Jesus. So the Ionian Greeks, they break off. This is where you bring in your naturalists. This is where the people start to be, begin trying to look at the world with a, with a lens without God. And so on the other side, you've got the Italian Greeks who still believe, you know what, everything is spiritual. You know, like, but they, they believe in illusions. Like, this is, this is how they were thinking. How do you know we're not here speaking thinking we're humans, but we're all butterflies. But we're really butterflies. That was the thinking. That was a school of thought they were, they were coming through. There are a lot of schools, schools of thoughts that were coming through this era. And so one side says, no, it's spiritual. The other side says, no, it's natural. It's material. And so Plato comes along. Anyone who know Plato is, he's He's a philosopher who a lot of our education system and value system is still, we still use today. We don't know it, but we still use them today. And so Plato, he comes in and he says, no, it's 70% spiritual, but 30% material. All right? I'll get to the point as to why I'm explaining this. And then he teaches someone by the name of Aristotle. And Aristotle, when he begins to become who he was, he says, you're wrong, teacher. You're wrong, Plato. It's actually 70% material and 30% spiritual. And so there's this famous painting of Plato and Aristotle. Plato, there's a painting of, of Plato pointing up like this. And then the, 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 what do you call it, the Aristotle is pointing down like this with four fingers, talking about the senses that it's all material. But then comes Paul. 
And when Paul came in to speaking about God, speaking about Jesus, that he says, it's both. He says, it is spiritual because there is a God that spoke things into existence. There is a God who ordered things to be the way they are. There is a God who is spiritual. But he also says, it's also material. Because the materialistic things, they speak of God. Because they have a creator. The creator, it comes from something. It doesn't just all of a sudden, whoop, there it is. It has to come from something in order to exist. And so Paul says, Jesus is that. He is both fully God and fully human. Fully human. So God, Paul doesn't say you're wrong or you're wrong. He says you're both right, but it's found in Jesus. And since Paul brought, us, brought in this, this, this theology of Jesus being fully God, fully human... Everything after that, even archaeologists today, when they have uh, amazing finds, they base it on the Word of God. They base it on the Word of God. Even atheists, archaeologists, they base it on the Word of God because this is an important piece of history. So everything from that time is weighed now on Jesus Christ. He is the answer, right? But let's go back to Paul boasting. You know, he could have boasted about all these things. He could have been a renowned philosopher, but he chose not to because he wanted God's glory to be the thing that is shown to the world, not his glory, all right? Not his glory. And so false apostles... There are false people. In Matthew 24, we've been doing this with some of the Bible, with our Bible studies, with Rose and the Ladies on Thursday nights, uh, th Wednesday, Thursdays. Uh, we've had um, the privilege of Justin coming down to teach Matthew 24. If you're available on that day, come down. Um, we start at 10.30, don't we, Rose? 10.30, and Justin um, and I will go through Matthew 24. But the whole or that first picture of Matthew 24, Jesus is warning us about false prophets. Do not be deceived, he says, always. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. He says it four times, not to be deceived. So Paul's letter here to this church is, do not be deceived of what they're trying to tell you, of what they're trying to teach you. Remember what I taught you. And so Paul goes on to say, you know what, let me tell you. Let me tell you, he says, in verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn. I don't know what thorns, again, no one needs to know what it, what it goes through. There's this debate that when um, a lot of theologians talk about that, you know, what, what was Paul's thorn? I wonder what it was. Some say it was his um, bad eyesight because since um, he lost his eyesight, God had restored it, but he didn't restore it fully, which is why he always had people writing for him. So when Paul would say 
something and he had scribes who would write for Paul. And so some say, oh, maybe that was his thorn. Others say, oh, maybe it really was the devil coming at him and bothering him and trying to nag him to give up this, this purpose for life. We don't know. You know what? I think it's good we don't know. Because what if Paul had mentioned it, what he was struggling with? We'd hold, I, think, I think as human beings, we'd hold it against him. Like, for example, like, I could say my glasses are a thorn. It's a new thing. It bothers me. Like, I forget the thing, and then when I do do Bible studies and I've forgotten at home, I squint. Like, I'm, like, really bad. I'm, like, and people think I'm mad or, I'm like, no, 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 I'm not mad. My eyes are just, they're bad. <laughs> or, or the constant thing where I'm reminded of my grandfather, when he used to wear glasses, he used to always do this thing. And now I'm doing it. Because <laughs> it slides down my nose. And I'm just like, oh, stay up there so I can see everyone. It bothers me. But there are other thorns that I carry that I know I can't expose to you guys. I give it to God. I give it to Jesus. Because I trust him with it. So Paul just says, he doesn't give us details of what he's struggling with. He just says he's struggling with something. Family, are we struggling with something? Are we being weighed down with something? But he says the thorn was given to him. The thorn was given to him. And it says in verse 8, Three times he pleaded with the Lord, Take it away from me. Take it away from me. How many times have we prayed for these things to be gone away from us? Are we still praying those prayers? Because Paul only stopped praying after three times. Maybe some of us have been praying more than three times. Or perhaps we should stop be praying for it to be removed, but start asking God, why is it allowed in my life? Why have you permitted this thorn to be in my life? Come with me to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 13. And just while we're reading that, um, Kip, could you put up that, um, that picture of the sanctuary, please? So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. What God, and God is faithful. Remember that one. That is the most important part. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That reminds me of like, you know, when you stand up under it, it reminds me of like when I used to do squats. Uh, when I first did weightlifting, I, I could barely do anything. I was against lifting. I was always a cross-country runner. Just did sit, you wouldn't you wouldn't see that now, but I was a cross-country runner, and uh, you know I used to do push-ups, sit-ups. That was it for me. I was happy with that. But when I started doing weightlifting, I could only do like probably sixty kilo squat. Now I can do two hundred and thirty kilos squatting. 
you don't just graduate to 230, you build up to it, right? So there are, so the word here in 1 Corinthians 10 is that God permits the trouble. God, God permits the, the, the trials to be in your life. That there's nothing that is ever brought onto you unless it's gone through God. I want you to think about that a little bit. Because before it's allowed to be in your life or that trouble to be in your life, it has to go through the manager. It has to go through the boss. So it comes to God's table and he says, yep, all right, let me size it according to his faith because I know it's going to grow him. But if it's going to trouble him, I will make a way out for him. Say amen if you understand. Before trouble is allowed to be in your life, God measures it, sizes it up. It says, yep, that's his or her fit. It's because it's to grow you. I couldn't lift 230 unless I'd gone through the little steps. The little steps, they're the most important steps. Because had I skipped to 230, I think I wouldn't be standing, I'd be here in a wheelchair. So let's go back to our text. The thorn, he says. There's a thorn that was given to him. Is that picture up? Okay, awesome. Ah, oh, it's up there. Okay. Anyone, I'm not assuming everyone knows what this is. Anyone know what this is? The sanctuary of God found in Exodus. So the sanctuary of God has a specific service, right? Now this sanctuary of God, um, as you can see there, the altar, the altar of burnt offering. Now, the tribes that lived around um, this sanctuary was all aligned to it. So this was in the middle, in the midst of the tribes. So God was a center, right? God was teaching his people, I have to be your center. So if, things are, if times are getting tough and you're finding it too hard to bear, God didn't move. We moved. Okay. God is to always be the center. And we have to make him priority, especially through the times we are going through. And so in the sanctuary, there are specific services. But I don't want to go through all the services uh, because that's, that's a whole other sermon, right? But what is holding, what is holding the, the, the tent up? Anyone know? What do you need? When you go camping, what are the things you need for camping or for your tents? Poles? Yeah. Rope? Yeah, you need rope. Anything else? Pegs. Of course. Foundation. Because if you don't have pegs, the tent won't hold. Right? Now, the reason why God asked the people to make him a tent was because he wanted to be with them. He had no other way of trying to dwell with the people except through a tent. And so he said, build that tent so that I can come and be with you. Are we building that tent in our homes? Are we building that tent in our marriages? Are we building that tent in our children? There is always a work to be done. And so he says, build that tent so I can be with you and you with me. God is a God of love. He doesn't want to be separated from us. 
He always wants to be with us. Always wants to be with us. And so in 2 Corinthians, coming back to our chapter 12, where Paul was talking about the storm that was given to him, he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? In weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. May rest on me. The thorn, the thorn, the Greek word for the word for, for the for the thorn there is scallops. Say it with me, scallops. Not potato scallops. It's the Greek word is scallops. Now, the meaning of that word is either a, a sharp object or a tool. Right? Something pointy, something sharp, or a tool. Paul realizes that the thorn that was given to him was to keep the sanctuary pegged down in his life, in his being. Because God didn't just want to dwell in a tent. God didn't just want to dwell in a tent. This is why when Jesus came down, he was not just a sacrifice. He was also our high priest. And only the high priest could be in the presence of God. And we know in Hebrews that Jesus is our representative. Jesus is our leader. Jesus is still in flesh and fully spirit before God. Why? To take all of our prayers up to the Father. Every prayer you've prayed, every prayer you didn't pray, prayers you don't know of, Jesus hears. And when Jesus hears, he takes that prayer and he takes it to the Father. But when Paul asked for the form to be removed, what he was really asking for was, God, be moved from me. You imagine, if I ask God, Lord, take the thorn from me, it's bothering me. Guess what that would do? That would make me comfortable. You know, I'm, I'm good, God. I'm all right. I'm, I'm leading the church on my own. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm fine. I don't need your help. I'm, I'm all good, God. I, I don't need to give my 10%. I'm, I'm all good. I can look after myself. I believe in my own resources. I can do it. But Paul realizes after praying three times, wait, actually, God, leave the thorn there. Because it makes me realize, make, keeps me accountable to keep coming back to you. Comfort is our enemy. Comfort is our enemy. And I'm not just talking about comfortable and like luxury living. I'm talking about, you know what, I'm comfortable in my struggle. I'm, 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 I'm done praying. I'm done fighting. I'm, I'm throwing in the towel. I'm done. I'm comfortable where I am now. I'm just going to be okay with the struggle. Comfort is the enemy. And if we become comfortable and not seek Jesus on our knees and in his word, 
as we read in 1 Timothy 15, 16, it makes us wise unto salvation. It makes us realize that no matter how dark the times are, we have hope. We have hope. We don't have it tomorrow. We don't, you know, we don't work towards it. Oh, Lord, let me get myself together. Let me be ready. Um, then I'll think I'll have it. No, the Word of God says, when you believe in the one that God has sent, Jesus Christ, you have salvation. Now, to keep salvation is to pray, keep that thorn in me, Lord, so that I don't boast of myself. Keep that thorn in me, Lord, so that I can continue to come back to your throne. The struggles we're facing today, Lord, thank you for the struggles because it helps me to keep my eyes on you. Yeah, it's tough, but I'm not going to preach a gospel that says when you come to Jesus, everything's going to be all good. It's going to be all right. You won't have any troubles. You'll be fine. No. That's the whole reason why I got rebaptized. because the first time I got baptized, I thought I had this thinking that when I got baptized, everything was going to be good. Everything was going to be in order. But it was the complete opposite. That when I found out there was still evil in the world, that there was still struggle, I, I renounced my faith. Started partying, started, you know what? I might as well join and be comfortable in the struggle. But the second time I gave my life to God, I understood that whatever trouble came my way, whatever trial, whatever the world can throw at me, I know I will continue to stand because Jesus has stood it. Jesus was risen out of the grave. Not even the grave nor death could conquer him. So we don't need to be conquerors. Allow Jesus to be the conqueror in your life. And I'm not saying you don't pray about the struggles that you're going through. Pray them. But if they're still being persistent in your life, ask, Lord, why is it in my life? What are you trying to teach me about my faith? What are you trying to help me trust you in? Pray those prayers. It's because Paul realizes that when the thorn remains, God's grace, it's sufficient to deal with the thorn. It's sufficient to deal with the thorn. And so as I close up, I want to do a specific appeal. You know, on the 19th of November, we've got six people who are giving their lives to Jesus. And... Um, Yet that thing there will be filled with water and they will be choosing to follow Christ. And I don't know if appeals were made in, in the past where they've asked you to stand up, follow Jesus. And maybe it wasn't your time then. Maybe you held it off for some reason. Maybe your time is now. Maybe God is calling and knocking on the doors of your hearts now. Saying, look, don't pray for that thorn to be removed. Pray it for it to be there so that I am there. So that my presence, my sanctuary is in your life. And so my appeal is that if you are looking 
to make Jesus your personal savior and you want baptism or baptismal studies, I'm asking you to stand. Praise God. God, Jesus is always knocking. And like I said, maybe it wasn't your time before. I don't believe in coincidences. When the word is preached, we are to transition from here to here. So I don't know. I'm only just going to give it another two minutes. But if God is calling you for baptismal studies or baptism, stand so we know who you are. Not because you're not you're not standing because you're ready. You're not standing because you've got it together. You're standing because he has it all together. And he's the one that's going to lord it over your life. He's going to protect you. He's going to keep you. All right. Praise God. Esther. My final appeal is that you don't pray away the thorn. That the thorn will continue to remind you of his hope and his grace. Because it's sufficient and the hope that we have, it's, it's, a, it's a good one. He hasn't failed on us. He is with us always. So please stand if that is you. Stand and let us pray. Amen. All right, Father God, we praise God, Lord, that you are forever knocking on the doors of our hearts, that you haven't given up, that you are persistent, and that is all because of your love for us. And so, Father, I pray over our church families, I pray over the marriages, I pray over the children, I pray over our youth, Lord Father, our leaders. I pray, Lord, that you will bless them immensely from the crowns of their heads to the soles of their feet, Lord Father, that wherever they tread, wherever they speak, wherever they think, will continue to speak of your glory over their lives, Lord. Praise God, Lord Father, for Esther, as she has stood to make a decision, Lord, to commit her life to you. I pray and I know that there are others. There are others that you are still knocking on the door of their hearts for. But I pray that you make it known. Because, Lord Father, the times that we face is troublesome. But we praise you. We are so joyful in our own hearts, Lord, that you have got it all together. That you already have a plan. That you are coming back for us. And that you have defeated sin because of your glory. Thank you, Father, for all that you do. We love you. In your name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen.